remembering what I was trying to say here. We usually say, welcome to the well. <laughs> <laughs> just a hint. Just, um, just to help you along here. Welcome to the well. I am Anson Mount. <laughs> I am Anson Mount. No. Wait, who's on first? <laughs> I am Mount. No. I am Anson Mount. And I am Anson Mount. Monsters. Why do we have monsters at all? I'm on the edge of my seat. Because? Well, you know why. What do you think? Why why do we have monsters? Yeah. To explain the unknown? Or our fear fear of the unknown? Mm Mm-hmm. Monsters can represent our animal natures. They can represent the part of us that we want to believe is tamed. Werewolves was the way we explained rabies to ourselves. Is it really? I didn't know that. A long time ago, rabies was very common in the uh, in the ancient world. So everyone had the experience of your loyal best friend, your dog, your hunting partner, freaking out and trying to kill you. And if he got his mouth on you, you were next. You would start behaving in the same way. Huh. What? How else would you see it other than the? The, the spirit, spirit of right, the animal yeah. has passed to you and turned you into uh, animal-human hybrid, which is where a lot of monsters come from. And it's, I think it's, by extension, it's always been a way that we explore our own animal natures. Parts of us are untamed, and what better way to explore that than with a monster that uh, embodies and exaggerates some animalistic element. Right. And in a lot of cultures, the people who are given the job of playing these animal spirits, for example, in animist cultures, that's a sacred job. It's a religious job to embody the spirit of an animal. And in my my world, I think Doug Jones is actually in that tradition of carrying a sort of sacred job into the 20th century of bringing these mythical creatures to life that resonate and connect with us on an almost dream level, an almost uh, primeval, subconscious animal level. Hmm. I like that. And I think it's wish fulfillment to want to become a thing that is either scarier or more powerful in ways that you are not. I mean, this is why we have Halloween, right? This is why shaman dress up as animals, because when you hide someone completely, they do feel liberated to be uninhibited because no one knows who you are. Your identity has been obscured. You're suddenly free. Sure. I remember the first time I ever put on a neutral mask. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's crazy what happens to your body suddenly because your your face is suddenly deprived of what it has always done, which is to express. Your body just immediately takes over and becomes more expressive. I also think that because we are such social animals, the knowledge that your identity has been obscured means that you are now kind of off the hook in right. some ways. And it's and it's so powerful that you can do that even if everyone in the room just saw you put that mask on. Mm-hmm. But knowing that your face has been changed, I see it all the time, you know, in, in makeup effects. You put uh, uh, a makeup on somebody and 
you know, a very inhibited, mousy sort of person will suddenly kind of go crazy and start bouncing off the walls because this is their chance mm -hmm. to not be themselves. Right. Like the first time I saw myself as the Silver Surfer in full, full, a full body mirror going, good gosh, I'm hot. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, did, I thought, I'm not, I can't channel this character. I can't, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> That's isn't it amazing. The mm -hmm. brain will do that little trick on you. Mm -hmm. Like you, you've seen yourself in the mirror your entire life, and now you see some a new reflection. You go, oh no, that's me. I didn't even <laughs> recognize myself as as the Silver Surfer. They wow. restructured me into a very handsome, like stoic, heroic. Oh, it was beautiful. Everyone wants that feeling of being liberated, right, uninhibited. But being uninhibited is not the same thing as acting. Some people probably think that it is, that once they're uninhibited, they can now act. But that's not the case. You're just no. simply uninhibited because drunk people are uninhibited. <laughs> but they're not acting. And occasionally entertaining. Creature performance attracts a very strange sort of person sometimes who doesn't want to be an actor, but does want to play monsters. And of course, that is impossible because you have to be an actor. Oh, yeah. I get messages almost daily from someone somewhere in the world saying, I want to do what you do. Do you have any advice? I didn't have that option to, to, to ask, you know, actor A or B. I want to do what you do. Because I, well, I, first of all, I, I, never was, I never sought this career that I have. I remember I was after sitcoms. So I never thought like, you know, if I could just talk to Boris Karloff, then I could, you know, maybe he could tell me what to do. Well, he was dead. Once I realized that what I where that like the creature effects world was taking to me, um, I did then remember those. What was the first thing I saw that inspired me? Well, the, Boris Karloff is the Mummy was my first horror film I ever saw, and the the effect, the haunting effect it left on me, and then uh, Boris Karloff again as Frankenstein, um, or uh, Rico Browning and uh, oh as um, the fish, the Gill Man in the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And um, and or and Ben Chapman. It was a, it was a two part character. Uh, one was on land. One was in water. Those all left indelible, you know, marks on my brain that uh, that uh, and my heart that will never go away. So, um, that I so I got inspiration from them, but never was able to talk to them or get advice from them. So I did kind of like have to invent the career that I have today. I mean, you now along the way, then you've done do movies where there are other creatures in it, and you meet other guys who do this all the time. Like there's um, Brian Steele's another one. He he did the both Hellboy movies with me, and we've worked together many times on other projects. Um, there's Derek Mears. There's Douglas Tate. There's you know there's other names out there that that creature guys would know that I've worked with, and and so we can we can commiserate with each other on like you yeah, know that was really hot that was really sticky that was really heavy that really hurt <laughs> whatever yeah but um <laughs> Doug is part of a long tradition of making monsters manifest but before he can play them and before they can be created by the creature effects people they must first be imagined so who comes up with these monsters in the first place well, Doug is friends with, and I'd argue the muse for, our generation's preeminent monster maker, Guillermo del Toro. Well, he, he has said monsters saved his life, right? Yeah. yeah when he was a kid, it was the monsters that, uh, that he could watch and, and escape into and learn from. And so he has created monsters for all of us to escape into and learn from. Um, 
and the, the 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 creatures in his movies are not the bad guys often they're they're uh the bad guy and, and the monsters of his movie the true monster is often some human who's getting it wrong an authority figure who's abusing their power or whatever and it's his creatures his monsters that are that are the most human of all his characters because that's how he grew up relating to them and in humanizing them you know for himself when we were doing our press tour for the shape of water i heard guillermo say when he was asked you know, did what what monster movies did you did you look at? You know, did you watch to to get it ramped up for The Shape of Water? He said, "Oh, I don't watch monster movies for that." He said, "He I got my inspiration from watching musicals and uh, you know old old uh, you know classic cinema." Oh wow, which is like that. That's it. Me with my sitcom love, and I, I love Hallmark Christmas movies. I mean, I know I am a junkie for them. <laughs> Uh, so, so I put that kind of like sappy, happy ending, heart and soul, or or humor, mm-hmm. all my sitcom loves, um, uh, my 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 creatures and monsters I played over the years have that influence more than anything, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, well, because there's no there's 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 no way to connect just being monstrous. No, no, there isn't. Yeah, yeah I, I have to humanize them or I can't play them yeah. <laughs> myself. Yeah. yeah. Doug's empathy and graceful physicality made him the perfect vehicle for Del Toro's monsters. And for the remainder of this episode, we'll be covering a collaboration that is almost singularly responsible for keeping the monster film culturally relevant. And Del Toro means a lot to me, too. In addition to being the director of Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, and Shape of Water, he is also an accomplished makeup effects artist himself. He started a fantastic effects studio in Mexico City, and he and I were both studying under Dick Smith, the godfather of makeup effects, for those of you who don't know, at roughly the same time in our lives. Now, I'm not a sentimental guy, but his acceptance speech after winning the Oscar for Best Director made me a little misty. Well, Guillermo del Toro, oh gosh, I mean, I could talk for two hours just on him alone. Um, he has been a he, the biggest influence on my career, and and uh, he he has reinvented me several times. You know, I've known him for twenty years now. We met on Mimic back in nineteen ninety seven. I've known him for twenty one years, uh, and and he. Um, I, I came in just to do some reshoots. Uh, the bug, the bug creature, the creatures. I've been a bug guy twice now too. Look at that! <laughs> Good heavens! Um, but these, but these, these overgrown cockroaches sort of like took on human characteristics and could mimic humans, and that's why they could blend in in a crowd, and then all of a sudden become this humongous threat. So, uh, overgrown cockroaches in New York City's subways—not such a stretch, no, no, right? No. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, um, they were doing pickup shooting in Los Angeles. Well, the Canadian actor who played the bug guys to get him down there would have been, you know, travel, hoteling, per diem-ing, and, uh, you know, visa, work permits, whatever. So, like, who do we know locally? So, I, so out comes the tall, skinny guy, Rolodex, that I'm, you know, a big stick-out card in. So, uh, so I got a call from Rick Lazzarini's shop saying, hey, are you free to do a, a, a pickup shoot? for this one movie like tonight at 11 o'clock so it was the same day call like oh yeah oh sure i'm out of work actor of course i'm free tonight you guys paying i'm a whore uh so so that's how i met guillermo was was uh on that that was was, that was his first um american film and it was a big studio production um 
and uh, he and I did, but he had quite a reputation, you know, in Mexico. Uh, by then, he'd done Kronos, was his first feature film, and and I think this was his second movie, honestly, um, but his first American one. So I didn't know who he was, and uh, but we we hit it off at at a lunch table. I worked on it for a total of three days. My second day was our lunch table discussion, where he said, "Tell me everything you've been in before." So I told him, rattled off my resume, and he knew everybody I'd worked with or knew of them, all the makeup. And he wanted to hear all about the makeup artists and all the monsters that they had created on me. I'm like, oh, how exciting. Uh, was he a nice guy? Oh, God. <laughs> so he really wanted to keep in touch afterward. Do you have a card? So, uh, so I did. It was a really nice experience. And then five years later, I got a call from another creature shop saying, hey, uh, this, we have a director who says he knows you, and we're doing this movie a creature and we thought can you come and meet us tomorrow sure well that was Abe Sapien for the Hellboy movies in the in the uh, the unveiling of the maquette at the creature shop of here's here's the here's the 3D design of Abe Sapien for the for Hellboy 1 um what do you think director Guillermo del Toro and he fell to his knees and said oh you're so beautiful and I am so fat <laughs> that, that's that's what he said that's uh, on record so he um <laughs> So the guys, the guys at the creature shop said, you know who the perfect person to play this long, lithe, skinny, you know, fish man is Doug Jones. He goes, Doug Jones, wait, 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 I know Doug Jones. He pulled my card out of his wallet five oh, years after I gave wow. it to him. And uh, it was after that experience that he then, you know, really thought of me every time. When you did Hellboy and you got into, they, they hired, a different actor did the voice, correct? David Hyde Pierce? No, did no, you? No, no, uh, oh, sorry. Pants Labyrinth, you mean, or Hellboy? Which no, no, were, Hellboy. Hellboy. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, in Hellboy yeah. 1, yes. Yeah. It was my voice in Hellboy 2. It was your voice in Hellboy 2. But when you got into Hellboy 1, did you know another actor was going to be doing that voice? Yes. Uh, I knew that that had been put on the table because I came to the, I came to the party late. Uh, actually, they had been talking about... Um, Oh gosh! I think the, at the studio level they were talking about you know they they weren't going to get an A list actor to wear that that much of an of a makeup that would obliterate their face because Ron Perlman kind of looked like Ron Perlman in as the Hellboy makeup in the Hellboy makeup. This this fish character was going to really take take characteristics away from a a, a, a notable face. So they thought, oh, who are we going to get? So they thought they they came up with this brilliant idea. Well, let's get somebody who does this creature thing and then get a, a a name actor to voice him boom that solved their their marketing problems i'm like oh crap that's how it was how the role was introduced to me you know here's what they was already been discussed doug how do you feel about that and i was like i don't feel good about it at all i would rather just do the whole role yeah. like anybody mm-hmm. else gets to do that would piss me off yeah, yeah. so uh so i i, I kind of balked and squawked a little bit so the names they were they were they were considering like a, a like four different three different names at the time and so they added me as a fourth, like, okay, well, you, you know, you, you give us the sound that we're looking for and the, we'll throw your name into the mix. I'm like, okay, I can't compete with, you know, famous names though. If they, cause at the time, you know, I wasn't, I was not a name. So when the whole thing was said and done, and then I got a phone call from Guillermo himself saying, well, David Hyde Pierce is voicing over you. I'm like, oh crap. Well, uh, I love David Hyde Pierce, and and he was a complete gentleman about it. He uh, did not take a credit in the film. Uh, it's on IMDb, but it's not in the movie. Um, so if you watch the movie, he does not show up in the main titles or in the rolling credits. Uh, he, at his request, when asked why, he said it's out of respect to Doug Jones. That was really un- 
unheard of. And yeah. yeah, because when he got into his his voice session, well, things I can't. I was the first one brought in to do my voiceover work. Uh, I, I the ADR voice looping. I came in and fixed all the dialogue myself, and um, and and I. I loved the sound that, that I had for Abe and, and uh, everyone else did too. Guillermo loved it. Um, the studio loved it. But the question came back, did, weren't we talking about having a, don't you owe us a, run, a pass of this voice with someone famous? <laughs> okay. So, so Guillermo, out of, out of the, all the names, he, he wanted David Hyde Pierce if you're going to, if they had to pick somebody. So David came in and uh, when David Hyde Pierce came in, he heard my performance Oh, of course. In his earpiece, and he saw me on screen, and he said, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? Very sweet of him. That's why he got inspired to say, I'll do this, but I'm not going to take any credit for it. Very, very sweet of him. And so he didn't show up at the red carpet premiere, nothing. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, oh, I've never met David in person, but when I do, I'm going to kiss his left cheek and tell him thank you for that. He didn't, didn't need to do that. I would, I'd be totally underst- happy for him to take credit for what he did because he did a great job. Class act. Oh, David Hyde Beers? Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that was Del Toro and Doug's first collaboration uh, with a speaking monster uh, in the business part of show business <laughs> conspired to hide Doug's voice. But Del Toro would make his next film in Spain. <laughs> And in Spanish, in Spanish, <laughs> in a language Hollywood execs don't think about regulating. <laughs> when doing Pan's Labyrinth, he he uh, uh, got a hold of me to say, "You're the only one who can play the fawn and the pale man in this. Please read the script and get back to me tonight." <laughs> so I had that, that was that day taken up. When a director of that note, of that stature. And of that creativity uh, comes after you. It's like that is the biggest compliment you can imagine. You know, just like, God, how does he keep coming back for me? Because I, 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 I'm a self-effacing actor. I think I suck. Every everything I do, I'm sure, is horrible. So, so I, I keep thinking he's sorely mistaken. Oh, really? Right? I, oh, God, every time it's like, are you sure? Well, when he came after me for Pan's Labyrinth, and and here's this big fawn, this fawn creature, and I thought, well, I can. Pro-. It was in Spanish, right? I had reams of dialogue in the Spanish language. I told him, I can't do this. You got the wrong guy. And why would you tell? What actor would tell a director, you, no, please don't hire me for this? <laughs> he says, no, you you have to play the fawn. No one else can do it but you. You have to do it. Okay, go, Nemo. But he uh, he is one. Of, he he can can size up a human being, and when he meets you. He takes all of it in. He takes all of you in, and he he knows who you are within minutes, and he knows what your strengths and weaknesses are. And so, uh, and plus, now so now I've known him for years and worked with him. He knows exactly what he's getting when he comes after me, and he knows things about me that I don't. He he has co- more confidence in me than I do. So so when he writes something for me that is that that will stretch me beyond my comfort zone, like the like the fawn from Pan's Labyrinth. The bottom part of the face was glued on to me, so that I controlled all of the mouth expression. And but from the cheekbones up, was mechanical eyes that were built out here that, that were puppeteered by other people off camera because they were uh, they were wide set eyes that didn't match my own. So I was I was peeking through the tear ducts. Also, in Abe Sabian from the Hellboy movies, I was peeking through tear ducts with big eyes onto the side out to the side. 
So that required someone else to operate them or CG enhancements in post-production, right? And so, sometimes you're wearing a, a helmet with an entire face that's puppet that's mechanized with servos and <laughs> boy that and that's distracting too. When you are try, when you're trying to do like a, like a, a scene with somebody and and all you hear in your head is <laughs> it, uh, oh it's uh, it's very distracting. And uh, the top half of my face, with my eyes and my ear ear ears wiggled in the fawn and pan's labyrinth and and the servos were extremely they were high pitched like a really high pitch and so i'm I'm doing all my scenes with ivana becaro who was an 11 year old girl at the time and she kind of soft spoken in some scenes and i was like oh gosh i can't hear i can't hear a word this girl's saying and it's in spanish it was just so it was so hard it was so hard so half the half of our work together is him saying you can do this <laughs> right and I'm like oh god i don't know I'm assuming he had to learn all those lines phonetically. And now he's also on stilts. And he can't see. And he's got a head full of servo noises. He can't hear the person he's acting <laughs> right, with. Right. He, he's blind. He's, it's almost like trying to act remotely. Mm -hmm. Like through some sort of telemetry <laughs> suit. <laughs> or something yeah. where you have to push through so many distractions yeah you know and acting is so much about focus and concentration and this is one of the reasons i think that that doug deserves an honorary mm -hmm. uh, academy award mm -hmm. is because you know we've heard him speak about some of his heroes like boris karloff uh he and i spoke a lot about lon cheney they were incredible at mm -hmm. what they did, and 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 they they laid the groundwork for this for this type of acting creature performance. Uh, but they did not have to shoulder these kinds of of burdens. Mm -hmm. uh, what he's doing is is groundbreaking work. I, I think he's done enough at this point, and I, I hope they don't continue to wait. Not because I think you're going to die, Doug, but because. <laughs> Because I think you're already deserving. So coming after me for the shape of water was what the 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 new twist on this was. Uh, I'm a creature for him one more time, yes, but I'm the le romantic leading man of the movie. That made all the difference. Like now this this is different than like a monster. This is a you know a a a, a soul connection that I have to make with a human a human woman in this movie. Uh, and so many monster movies. The ones that inspired Guillermo, even uh, there is a love interest of some sort, whether whether it's out of sympathy or let me help you, and, and and romantic notions are hinted at, but can never be because look at them, they're from different worlds. It'll never work. Guillermo wanted to make the monster movie where it does work. Damn it, <laughs> right? We were filming Crimson Peak. It was uh, it was January of 2014. I'll never forget. I, and I had a day. I was in. We were filming in Toronto. I had a day off. But I got a call from the office, uh, the production office, saying, can you come in and meet Guillermo during lunchtime today? He wants to meet you in his office and talk about something. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. I'm getting called to the principal's office, right? <laughs> so, so I get in there. and Doggy, come in. Shut the door. I'm like, oh, crap, it is. I, yeah, I'm going to get paddled. <laughs> so uh, uh, and that's when he says... Um, they told me that he was going to be working... Uh, once he's done with, with Crimson Peak, which is a big studio movie... Uh, 
he wants to go back to doing something smaller and more artsy again. I'm like, oh, this is so good because he hadn't done that since Pan's Labyrinth. And I know that's where he flourishes is when he can, when he's let go to, to create his art without a lot of decision makers above, you know. So I was really excited to hear that alone. Then he says, yeah, well, there's a creature in it and I want you to play him. I'm like, okay, big surprise. Yeah, and, but, but again, t- uh, terribly complimented. And um, then he started explaining, but he, what he was concerned about was, uh, you know, this is the romantic character male of the movie and um so he said i know you're a good catholic boy so i want to uh run this by you i'm like oh crap well okay now here okay here's it here it is <laughs> what what's the problem he goes well there uh, uh. he used uh, uh, some un- untoward language <laughs> <laughs> because he's want to do that uh, he uses the F word as though it's a second language. Um, I've always said, yeah, he speaks three languages fluently, uh, Spanish, English, and the F word. But uh, so he, he, he said, there's, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a love scene or two. And uh, I'm like, oh, how graphic is it? What are they going at a doggy style? He goes, well, no, it's in a bathtub. Like, okay. Uh, I said, start at the beginning and get me to the tub. So that's when he, he didn't have a script yet. And he just kind of verbally told me the story. Uh, and, and I was sitting there with my chin in my hands going, oh my gosh, what happens next? Oh, to have Guillermo tell you a story. It's like, it's like, get the campfire going, get the marshmallows. I want to listen. It's story time. Ugh. And, um, so by the time we got to the bathtub, you know, I was like, oh, I see. They, yeah, they rescue this fish man from his laboratory test and get back to her apartment. Where are you going to put a fish man? But in the bathtub, of course. So, and now this character, ah, they've been falling for each other and now they have no supervision, no, no cameras, no, no glass wall between them. They can have at it with each other. And so... <laughs> So, but, but it, but it was a tender love thing. It wasn't like a, you know, a bestiality thing. So, oh no, I totally understood it then. Like, yeah, 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 I'm all for it. And Guillermo also said though, because he knows I've been, uh, I'm, you know, I'm married to Mrs. Laurie now for uh, 34 years now, but at the time it was 30, 32, 31 years. But he, he said, and he's met her many times. So he's like, no, I want you to uh, talk to your wife about this. Okay. To make sure she's okay with it. And that's He's a family man, wow. Guillermo is, and he really cares. He knows that the family structure is the most important thing you have in your life. And so um, he wanted to make sure that she was going to be okay with me uh, having an intimate relation with an, an actress on film. Very sweet of him to worry about that. I said, yeah, okay, well, I'll, we'll get back to you then. I'll, I'll have a talk. I'm gonna, it's fine. What I've been wondering is, like, what's it like to go through the you know these heavy makeup processes and then suddenly now you're adding another level of now taking it underwater. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right. 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 Well, from a practical standpoint, yeah, that was um, also uh, very scary and difficult. But the bathroom scene where we, we stu- uh, she stuffs towels under the door and floods the bathroom, that was, that was a bathroom set built in a tank that they could actually flood with water. So we were in eight feet of water and uh, getting our air at the top and then plunging down until we would hear action over a speaker system under the water and uh, do our little, little, you know, sort of swirly dance around each other. And then we were hoping, hoping and hoping and praying for that cut so we could go back to the <laughs> get more air. Yeah. But doing that in a rubber glued on makeup, it's like, OK, my nose is plugged. My, and, and there, but it wasn't like it wasn't airtight. So that me or it wasn't watertight. So 
water was when I would plunge into the water, it, I could feel it. it's like a wetsuit. It fills up, and you, you know, my mouth opens, but it's like it was it was uh, it was scary. I think it was the last episode. You talked about putting in a neutral mask and trying to act through that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you feel complaining about that after? Hearing what Doug has to go through. <laughs> yeah, like, that, now try to act while drowning. Yeah. Well, you and I are both scuba divers. Yeah. And you, 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 I think any under, scuba diver understands uh, that there is a uh, sort of switch you have to develop in your brain to tell yourself not to panic. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's not natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to do that without... A breathing apparatus <laughs> and then having to act calm on top of that and engaged with another human being I mean my goodness it's a stressful enough situation under any context but now you <laughs> get 40 pounds of latex yeah, glued forget, to you <laughs> forget all of that forget all of that just forget it because yeah. now you have an emotional love scene <laughs> that you have to do you right. know, where right. you have to be a character yeah. and perform and connect emotions. This is what I'm saying about film acting, man. You find yourself in the most ridiculous situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, just and, so and, absurd. And I would say that no one has been in more absurd situations <laughs> than Doug. <laughs> right. I did all my fish guy st- my fish studying in Hellboy, um, where I would I watched the the fish in my home office tank like goldfish, like koi uh, in my, and, and I loved wh- why I had them in the first place was because of how they, they moved so fluidly and it was calming to me, but they had curious heads. That, and so that, that's kind of like, I incorporated that into Abe Sapien's physicality. He had a curious head that would bob around and then he had, uh, you know, his limbs would be flowy and, and uh, fin-like. Uh, so very fluid. So when we were doing The Shape of Water, then Guillermo made a very specific note to me. This is not Abe Sapien. I want you to be something different. But I, okay, well, I've, so I've explored the fish guy thing. Now I got to, but, but Abe Sapien also had a very postured, gentlemanly way about him. He was extremely well-spoken, had a huge vocabulary. So this is, is an animal from the wild in The Shape of Water. This is a, a, a fish character that does not speak. He, he makes noises. And uh, and doesn't even know how to and is is taught sign language by my uh, mute sign language speaking uh, lover lady, <laughs> so it's like a different story. <clears throat> so I did have to find. I, I really I what I channeled for the shape of waterfish man was more of of the the, the family dog. When you um, <clears throat> so when you when you talk to the to to your dog Fluffy, uh, hey Fluffy, you're, who's your good boy? Who's your good boy? And so the dog doesn't know how to say, oh, I'm a good boy, Dad, and pointed himself with a thumbs up. He has to do his own language, which is what a dog does. It might be a tilt of the head, might be a, a raising of the ears, might be a wag of the tail, might be a like a, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I wanted to make my own. Something so uh, so that's why uh, during production, uh, if I was if I did something that was too human, well, it's, uh, the shape of water scene that, that I specifically remember was I'm sitting in the bathtub once once I've been rescued from the the laboratory and I'm I'm now in Eliza's apartment in her bathtub. 
She's at, back, she's at work, so her neighbor, Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, is sitting in the bathroom with me. He's kind of like babysitting. And he's, he's sketching me uh, on a pad while he's talking to me about And he, he, st- he starts having a heart-to-heart with someone who doesn't talk back to him, right? He's talking to this fish man. <laughs> and he's like, hey, do you ever feel alone? And how do you... And so we're having a great discussion, and I don't understand a word he's saying. So I had to turn off my humanness and try to listen to him like like the family dog would do. You, you hear quack 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 as as a dog, right? So as a fishman, that's all I could hear. Um, it, so I really had to fight my instincts to to tilt my head and go, "Oh yeah, I hear you, buddy." You know what I mean? Uh, and so Guillermo had to when when he would see human in me, he would go, "Doggy, how?" He just make that noise. I'm like, okay, that reminded me. Yeah, we're back back to animal. Okay, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even. Uh, so even I came up with that. Uh, I did an inhale noise to to um, to answer. Oh, like in in uh, in the shape of water, the scene where um, Eliza is is brought the portable record player in during lunchtime, and she plays me music for the first time. And I love what music sounds like, and she teaches me what music, the sign language for it by that little sweep on her forearm. And so I, I learn. I pick it up quickly, and I I want more. And she she picks up the needle and stops the music. And so I go. <gasps> to get it to go back again. So it was more of an inhale kind of a thing that I came up with because I thought, what would a fish sound like out of water? Probably gasping for air. So that's kind of <laughs> how I came up with that little little thing. I think you got to get out of here, man. Mm-hmm. It's yes, two, 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 yeah. I do. Got to go. All right. Uh, for doing this, man. Thank you for having me. so much fun. So fun, right? Yeah. We could talk for hours more, couldn't we? I think at this point, from combining episodes one and two, you have recommended Doug for an honorary Oscar, <laughs> and I have and I have said that he holds up a sacred tradition, like a priest or a shaman. In this business, you're constantly asked, "What do you? What did you think about working with this person? What did you think about working with that person?" With Doug, I'm not only extremely happy that I worked with him and proud that I can say that I worked with Doug Jones. I'm even happier that I just met Doug Jones. He is an absolutely lovely human being, and I hope that he is in my life for a long time. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, you said you haven't worked with Doug. I just got an idea. We got me, we got Doug, Mm -hmm. we got you. Mm -hmm. We give Randy Quaid a call. (laughs) Bug Buster too. I mean, come so, on. So that so that he can get a it's second. A two, it's a two-word pitch. <laughs> we walk straight into Warner Brothers. Bugbuster 2. So that, so that, and they're going to say, <laughs> what? <laughs> so it, how do we pitch this to Doug? This is your second chance to try to kill Randy Quaid. If, if you have no idea what we're talking about, it means you didn't listen to part one and you need to go back and go listen back to, to part, part one. one. <laughs> and I hope I'm not revealing too much here, but I'm going to let the listeners in on something they probably don't know, which is that Anson really has a face for radio and that <laughs> for the last... 30 years he has been covered in prosthetics <laughs> that is not his face that's why he's so good because he knows that people can't see the real him 
The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode, The Cemetery by Sinklog. Worky Worky by Andy G. Cohen. And Tennessee Hayride by Jason Shaw are all provided by a Creative Commons attribution license. If you liked this episode, please consider writing us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to our newsletter at thewellpod.com. This support really helps spread the word of our podcast and brings me tremendous emotional comfort. Thank you. Have a great week.